Ephesians chapter 2, um, 1 to 10. Uh, that's what we're looking at today. Uh, this is a word of the Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let me, uh, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll get started. Uh, God, we thank you just for uh, this time uh, where we can gather together virtually and uh, where we can hear your word. And, um, you know, there's so many things that we can't really do or experience well uh, virtually, but um, like we can't hear uh, one another's voices uh, in song uh, as we sing praises to you. And, um, you know, the time of uh, fellowship and interaction is uh, somewhat limited, but I guess the one thing that we can do is we can uh, hear from your word. And so we thank you that your word uh, is something that uh, can be heard, uh, but also something that is living and something that can speak into our hearts. And uh, just as uh, Brother Fred shared, uh, in terms of uh, his thankfulness for the word, uh, we, we are thankful, God, that you give us your word and your spirit. And so we pray that uh, both would be at work in our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so we're going to spend uh, the, the next couple of weeks thinking about the church, which is kind of a big topic. And uh, as, as you just heard in the announcements, you know, there are a lot of things happening in our particular church in terms of joining uh, the Christian Reformed Church denomination. But, you know, I also wonder how the pandemic has shifted or revealed some of our beliefs about the church. And, you know, I, you, you, I think you guys know this, but I've never been the kind of pastor to you know, inflate uh, our own sense of the importance of uh, Good News Church. I've never been a kind of like, oh, Good News is like the best church and we're distinct from all other churches and uh, all those kinds of things. And, and to be quite honest, I don't even think that way in my personal thoughts. But I do think God would say our church is important. Uh, why? And it's not because we are important because of what we bring to the table. Uh, but if we really are a community who believe and profess uh, a shared faith in the gospel, then that means a couple of things. You know, it means that God dwells among us. And if God dwells among us, then it means that we radiate the glory of God and God makes known his manifold wisdom to rulers and authorities through the church. And those are things that we're actually going to see in the next two sermons. And all of that is to say this, that the church is incredibly important. Uh, there are a lot of you know, negative narratives about the church and, you know, many of which are true, but uh, I don't know whether we are holding on to the biblical narrative of the church, because if all we hear are these negative narratives about the church, you know, combined with a pandemic that makes us largely unengaged from the life and ministry of the church, then it would, um, 
it would be pretty easy to conclude that church isn't really that important, right? Uh, but the church is incredibly important, not because the church is good, but because the church is incredibly important to God. And for whatever reason, God uses the church as a vehicle to display his love and to display his glory and to display his wisdom to the world. And it's also through the church where this precious message of the gospel is housed and protected and proclaimed and shown to the nations and to the world. And I was thinking about it. And based on some of the things that the Bible says, the church is actually pretty strong and resilient because she shares in the victory of Christ. And that was one of the things that we saw from the book of Revelation. Persecution can't uh, thwart the church. Satan himself can't bring down the church. And as I was thinking about it, the only thing that can really cause significant damage to the church is uh, internal division. And that makes sense to me because even if people attack the church, it doesn't really compromise the nature of the church. But when a church is divisive or quarrelsome or unwilling to love or forgive or reconcile, um, it really does compromise the nature of the church and the essence of what the church professes to believe in the gospel. Last week, we started by looking at a conflict between Jewish and Gentile believers, and it was a conflict over matters of food. And the reason we did that is because I, I didn't want to start by talking about the church in some high uh, theological abstract sense, but I wanted us to see the church in real life. And on the ground, there are many reasons uh, for division. There's many reasons to quarrel. And yet, pursuing unity is still incredibly important for several reasons. Showing hospitality to other believers who have different views or practices and receiving them into the community is incredibly important. Not passing judgment or not having disdain for a brother or sister is incredibly important. Why? I think Ephesians will help us understand why it's important and why unity is so important. And that's why we're going to look at Ephesians chapters 2, 3, and 4 uh, for the next month or so. Now, there are many, many great verses in the book of Ephesians that have to do with blessing and have to do with grace and have to do with salvation. And without knowing the broader context of what Paul is talking about or thinking about, we could easily see salvation as something that is unrelated to the church. But as Paul is writing some of these amazing things about spiritual blessing and grace and salvation, he is actually thinking about the church. And it's easy to think about the church in simply pragmatic or utilitarian categories where, you know, the church is a place to meet people or where my kids can learn some good moral values or where I can learn some useful things and apply it to my life. And while, of course, there are practical benefits to being part of the church, the reasons for why the church matter, uh, matters are not practical in nature. They're spiritual in nature. The church matters because she is the bride of Christ. The church matters because she is the temple of the living God. The church matters because it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is revealed. And if we don't have those priorities in the right order, when the church ceases to be practically beneficial to us, which of course I think happens in seasons of conflict and division, then it's going to be very easy to give up on the church. So as we start thinking about the church and, and as we start to go through the book of Ephesians, uh, we are going to start by talking about something other than the church actually. Right? We start by a conversation on grace because grace is ultimately what creates the church. And in order to fully understand this message of grace, uh, we have to understand the questions of who, what, and how. Right? Who were we? What did God do? And how are we supposed to respond to what God did for us? So that'll basically serve as our outline uh, as we look at this text. Now, first, 
who were we when God loved us? And this is essentially a question about human nature. The first thing Paul says is we were dead in the trespasses of our sins. Now, he's obviously writing to people who are physically alive and breathing. So when he says that they were dead in the trespasses of their sins, he isn't talking about a physical death, although um, you know he's talking about spiritual death and spiritual death is not entirely disconnected from physical death. But uh, let me say something obvious here. And it's so obvious, but it's worth thinking about anyway. There, there is a difference between being sick and being dead, right? Uh, when you're sick, you can take steps to get better. Uh, you can do things like drink a lot of fluids. You can call a doctor. Um, when we are sick, we can also measure our sickness by saying, I'm more sick than that person. I'm less sick than that person, right? But you know, the category of death is an entirely different category than being sick because a dead person is incapable of taking steps to make themselves better. There is no such thing as being more dead or less dead than another person. There is only dead. And so when modern people disagree with the Christian view of human nature, they often think Christianity is primarily addressing uh, maybe sickness, right, or morality. And they take issue when, um, you know, Christian theology says, well, everyone by nature is corrupted. Uh, But moral corruption is simply an expression of something that is deeper, a deeper problem, which is a spiritual death. Sin doesn't make us sick. Sin doesn't even make us morally bad. Sin makes us dead. Now, the second thing here Paul says is we uh, follow our, we were following the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. And, uh, you know, there's a, a pastor, John Stott, who talks about this as bondage and slavery, which is a good way to look at it. But uh, I actually thought about driving. Now, imagine driving around and trying to find a highway uh, to get to your destination. And imagine not having a map, imagine not having a GPS. And one of the things that you'll probably do is, you know, you'll see where the other cars are going and you'll start following them and you'll think, well, if all of these other cars are going in this direction, then, um, you know, perhaps they're all going to the highway. Perhaps they will help me get to the destination. But what if all the other cars are actually going away from your intended destination? And even worse, what if someone intentionally gives you the wrong directions? And that's sort of what being lost feels like. And the way we respond to being lost is we follow the course of others, relying on the direction of others. And Paul says that the problem with doing that spiritually is that the course of the world is moving away from God. And the devil is out there giving you all these false directions. So you're sort of lost and without hope unless someone comes to your rescue and intervenes. But even then, there's another problem with us in that we live according to the passions of our flesh. I hear a lot of people say that, you know, the solution to uh, some kind of problem that we might have or experience is more learning, more education. And of course, education might be part of uh, the solution. uh, But I do think it's also naive to think education or learning or getting more enlightened uh, will take care of all of these problems that we have, even, you know, with a problem like racism, which I think is on a lot of people's minds. Um, you know, a lot of the solutions that I, I see people saying is, you know, it's caused by ignorance and therefore the solution is more education. You know, that's a part of the solution. Uh, but the problem is actually much deeper than that because we are beholden to the passions of the flesh. Now, the last time I preached on this text was about three to four years ago. And uh, I mentioned an article And I I read it again, and I still think it's pretty relevant. And it was an article called You Can't Fake It. And this person uh, who wrote it was expressing a frustration 
with what he sees as a contradiction between modern values and the human experience as it relates to these values. And he's not writing from a Christian perspective, but this is what he writes. He says this, he says, we have intellectual architecture telling us correctly that physical attractiveness hierarchies are cruel and gendered and unfair, that judging someone by their looks is an absurd thing to do, and that cultural perceptions of what is and is not attractive reflect traditional bigotries and inequalities about power. And that's all correct. But we still care about being hot and we still judge each other about it. And our theories and our papers and our humanity seminars seem entirely inadequate to the task of ending that condition. And I think uh, he's saying something really insightful there. And I think he's actually more aware of uh, how the inner workings of the human heart uh, work in people. Even though we might have this intellectual architecture that might properly frame things, people don't live within that intellectual architecture. He says people still ultimately have insecurities because they have these underlying passions and desires that contradict a lot of what they believe to be right and true. And he actually takes it a step further and he says that our attempt to create these intellectual architectures all that is, is really our best attempt to cover our insecurities and fake it. And when it comes to real and true change, which for him is, uh, he says, is happiness and dealing with our insecurities and anxieties, you know, he says it, it, it doesn't work. Now, why doesn't it work? Well, again, from a biblical narrative, uh, it doesn't work because our problem is not ultimately a lack of that intellectual architecture. Our problem is that we are enslaved to the passions of the flesh. Our problem is that we follow the course of the world and the devil. Our problem is that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And that is who we are. And that is who we were when God loved us. Now, we have to start with who we were in order to really grasp this concept of grace, because we have to understand that God didn't love us when we were sick and asking for help. God didn't love us when we were lost and asking for directions. God didn't love us when we finally uh, decided to break free from the passions of the flesh and said, all right, I'm good now. Um, will you love me? No, God loved us when we were still by nature children of wrath. God loved us when we were still his enemies. God loved us when we followed the ways of the world and the devil and our flesh. In other words, God loved us when we gave him no good reason to love us at all. And that leads to this great turning point in this passage that starts with these two words, but God, right? Verse four tells us that God intervenes in spite of who we were, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God doesn't leave us dead. He doesn't leave us lost. He doesn't leave us enslaved to the passions of our flesh. God reaches out and intervenes because he is so rich in mercy and because of his great love for us. But what did God do? This is our second point. He did a few things. First, he made us alive together with Christ. Now, uh, if you look at it in the Greek, this is actually a really long sentence, and you actually don't get to the main verb uh, in this passage until verse 5, but the main, main verb here is made alive. That's the point of the passage. God made us alive. He didn't make sick people better. He didn't make moral people good. Ultimately, what he did was make dead people alive. 
Now, many years ago, there was this gospel tract that illustrated the gospel by depicting someone you know, drowning in the ocean and crying out for help. And the good news is that Jesus responds to your cry and he saves you and he throws you a life jacket and he brings you on to the safety of that boat. And the intention of that tract was good. And to a certain extent, that is the experience that people have when it comes to coming to faith in Christ. But at the same time, that tract didn't fully convey the reality of our spiritual condition. You know, a more accurate picture would be that we were actually at the bottom of the ocean, unable to even cry out for help unless God came to us, down to us, resuscitated us, and raised us up from death to life. And therefore, if we think the reason we ended up becoming a Christian believer at all is because, you know, we had the sense to cry out for help, then we give ourselves more credit than we actually deserve. If we think, well, at least I was humble enough for help, or at least I had the good enough sense to turn to God uh, when I was desperate, uh, then you, uh, you don't really understand the nature of your true religion and what God actually did. You see, salvation is by grace. Grace. Now, what is grace? Grace is not simply unmerited favor as if we receive a trophy, even though we didn't do anything to earn that trophy, right? Like a participation trophy. Uh, that's not exactly what grace is. Grace is actually more than that. Grace is demerited favor. It would be more like we violated the rules of that tournament and we got kicked out of that tournament and yet we still receive that trophy. Now, I use that picture of a trophy intentionally because the other thing that Paul says here is that God raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And what does it mean that we are seated with Christ? Well, it means that we have been given a place of honor. Uh, one of the phrases that pops up all over the book of Ephesians is with Christ or in Christ. And we saw that a couple of times in this passage. And this is what theologians will call union with Christ. We have been united to Christ to such a degree that all the benefits that Jesus receives as the perfect and the righteous son are also given to us by, being virtue, by virtue of being united with him. So when Paul says we have been raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places, he is saying God receives us, accepts us, loves us, rejoices over us as he does for Jesus. God treats us as if we, have done, we had done everything that Jesus had done, only we didn't do it. Well, Jesus did. And that, that is an incredible, incredible reality, friends. Now, that all comes at a cost, of course. Uh, it didn't cost us, but it cost Jesus everything. Uh, Jesus had to essentially switch places with us. He went from life to death on a cross. He went from being the beloved son to a child of wrath. And when God intervened, that was ultimately Jesus's trajectory in his earthly ministry. But in that, it also changed our trajectory and that was the very act that brought us from death to life, from being children of wrath to now being seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Uh, I was thinking about this. You know, when I was in college, I saw a picture, um, I, I think from a speaker at a retreat or something, uh, where he would say, you know, when you first become a Christian, you know, your understanding of your own sin uh, is at a certain level, uh, but it isn't as deep as it is going to be. So in a sense, you don't really know yourself because you don't know uh, the depth of your own sin or the depth of your own depravity. Uh, and at the same time, 
you have a certain understanding of God, uh, but as you mature, your understanding and knowledge of who God is in his righteousness and holiness uh, will only continue to grow. So maturity, what it actually looks like is this, like you, you feel like you're here and then you, you grow and you feel like, oh, you learn more of the depths of your sin and then you learn more of the holiness of God. And this gap between who God is and who you are continues to expand and expand and expand. And that's what Christian maturity is. Uh, but what the speaker says is, you know, that can be uh, really discouraging uh, unless you recognize that it is the cross of Jesus Christ that ultimately fills that gap. And as those two things create a bigger gap, what ultimately should happen as well is that the cross should grow and grow and grow because you realize the power of the cross and what the cross does to fill that gap. And that should produce a depth of gratitude that also grows more and more every year we walk with Christ. And so if all of that is true, if this is what you profess to believe, if you believe in this message of grace, what are the implications of that? And this is the third point. How, how should we live? Now, first thing Paul says is no one may boast. No one may boast. That, that is an incredibly important implication. It would be one thing if you were sick and you took steps to get better, uh, but you were dead. You were dead. And God did all the work in making you alive. If you are a believer, it isn't because you are more enlightened or morally better or you made the right choice or you're, you have more humility than anyone else. What Paul says is, it's by grace that you have been saved. Grace. And therefore, no one may boast. Now, there are a lot of places where uh, I think people like to assume the moral high ground. And that can be based on all sorts of things. It can be based on uh, ideology, or it can be based on politics. It can be based on how educated and aware you are of different social dynamics. And these things can become a reason to boast. And the reason why boasting is a poison is because even if you are right, you can still be wrong. That's why Christians can also be some of the most self-righteous people you will ever meet. Uh, yeah, you believe in the right things and the right doctrines and the right message and still have that self-righteous heart. You can be right and still be wrong because you have the wrong heart. You have a heart of boasting. But you see, if you really understand and experience what the gospel has done to you, if you really understand and experience what grace is all about, it leaves no room for boasting. And when there is no room for boasting, it leaves room for all kinds of good things. There's love and hospitality and gentleness and forbearance and humility and patience, all things that we need to eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And that, those are Paul's words from Ephesians chapter four. The second implication is this, we can do the work God prepared for us to do beforehand. Now, Martin Luther, uh, I get this from him, but uh, he says human love tends to be reactive. Uh, he uses different terminology. He says theology of uh, the cross and theology of glory, but basically human love tends to be reactive. And so uh, we tend to see something attractive about the other person and therefore we react by moving towards them. And since that is oftentimes our experience of love, 
we can we tend to view God's love through that lens as well. And that's why it's easier to think that the more good that we do, the more God will favor us. Uh, but Luther says that's the wrong way to understand God's love because God's love doesn't work that way. God's love isn't reactive. He isn't reacting to us and moving to us based on who we are. But he says God's love is creative. What does that mean? God doesn't love us because we are beautiful people. But it is God's love that makes us beautiful. It's creative. Now, what does that have to do with good works? Well, the problem with doing good works is that with a wrong heart, it can make us feel pretty righteous about ourselves. And yet, if we don't do good works, then it also tells us something is wrong with our faith. Uh, that's the message of James. Now, if God's love makes us beautiful, then it means our works are simply living out who God made us to be, right? Uh, let me try to illustrate this. I've used this illustration before, I think. Um, and it's a little bit of a, a crude or a superficial understanding of beauty. But you know, imagine there was a fashion show and someone worked really hard to make you beautiful by dressing you up, choosing the most uh, beautiful clothing, uh, by styling your hair, by, um, I don't know, maybe putting on makeup and highlighting certain features and covering up your blemishes. And they completely transformed you into being the most outwardly beautiful person that you have uh, ever been so that now you can walk onto that fashion runway or be on magazine covers. And now imagine after that, you decide, I want to play some football and I want to roll around in the mud after you've been beautified. Well, that would be kind of tragic, right? Because that's not what, um, that's not what you were uh, made to do. You, that's not why, why you were beautified. But if you walk in that fashion show like you were designed to do, then you basically fulfill the design and display of the one who has made you beautiful. Now, do you know how God makes us beautiful and how we display that beauty? It's not through superficial physical beauty, but it is by doing the good works that he created us to do, right? Uh, that's what the, I think the last portion of that passage uh, is talking about. We are God's workmanship and he prepared for us to do these good works and therefore we should walk in them. Quarreling, self-righteousness, condemnation, disdain, inhospitality, these are things that ugly people do, right? These are not things that people who have been made beautiful by the love of God, these are not things that beautiful people are supposed to do. Therefore, if you have been made beautiful by virtue of God's grace, by virtue of the power of his love, well, Paul is saying, walk in the good works that God has prepared for you to do. And of course, that is the call of individual Christian believers, but ultimately that's, that's the call for the church. That's the call for the church community. And that's why, you know, division is such a horrible thing because um, it betrays the very thing that God made us. He, through Christ, through his love, made the church beautiful. And yet when there's quarreling and division and um, disdain and all those kinds of things, uh, it betrays what God did to us. It betrays how God made us. It betrays how God redeemed us. And so that's the call for the church, for by grace, you've been saved. No reason to boast. We are all in the same boat. 
Um, if we are believers, if we are Christian believers, it's not because of us. It's not because we uh, had any kind of high ground. But God, out of his great love for us, saved us simply by his grace. So let's respond to his grace. Uh, let me pray for us. God, we thank you for uh, grace. We thank you for this message of salvation. And, um, you know, in some ways, uh, um, it's a message that I'm sure uh, many of us are familiar with. And maybe it's that familiarity that also makes it um, a little bit dangerous for us um, that we forget the impact and the power of that grace. And maybe that's why at the end of Ephesians 3, uh, Paul prays that prayer that we would be filled with the fullness of God. Um, you know, for those of us who uh, know this message, um, I pray God that you would help us to examine our hearts and examine our minds and to see, are we really living out the implications of uh, having received grace? Um, are our hearts touched by um, your love for us and the power of your love for us? And uh, if not, I pray, God, that you would remind us um, again, uh, experientially, that you have been so gracious to us, uh, that we, what we were as children of wrath, as once dead in, our, in the trespasses of our sins, as uh, people who follow the course of um, the world and uh, the prince of the spirit of the air and who uh, were enslaved to the passions of our flesh, that you didn't leave us here. You intervened and you showed us grace. So thank you for that grace. And uh, I pray that it would be transformative to our hearts, transformative to our church community. And we would be able to live this out as we walk in the ways that you call us to walk. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.